What I want to do is to clear up uh, the myths that were building up around C.S. Lewis. And one of the myths uh, had to do with the uh, Socratic Club. Thank you for listening to All About Jack, a podcast feature of EssentialCSLewis.com and also part of the Theology Mix Podcast Network. I'm William O'Flaherty. I'm very pleased to present a special one-on-one conversation I recorded with Walter Hooper at his home in Oxford, England. To say he doesn't need an introduction is more than an understatement. But to briefly summarize, he was the driving force behind helping to make sure books by C.S. Lewis stayed in print after Lewis died. And Walter also released several previously unpublished materials. Hooper's C.S. Lewis, A Complete Guide to His Life and Work, does what the title suggests. It is an indispensable companion to learning more about Lewis and what he wrote. Well, welcome to All About Jack, Walter. Thank you very much. Well, now, you've edited many volumes of Lewis's works, but one that is special to me is the Business of Heaven daily readings from C.S. Lewis that came out in 1984. I had only been reading Lewis for a few years at that time, and it exposed me to a wide variety of material from him. First, could you maybe summarize what it is for those who are not familiar with that book, and then maybe provide some history about how it came about and how easy or, or difficult it was to make the selections? First of all, this, this is one of the books that was not my idea. I was asked to, um, to do this by HarperCollins, the publishers, and... Um, so what, what I did was to look at several books, other people's books, you know, that are sort of through the year with so-and-so. Um, what I decided on was to provide the, the form that is best known, at least to, to Catholics and probably to Anglicans as well, which is the church year. It's based on the church year. The um, church year see, uh, has Easter, Lent, all the, you know, uh, uh, Christmas, all these things, the, the seasons. But they say each of the seasons has a certain distance apart. And uh, there's so many. Uh, Lent, for instance, is 40 days of Lent for Easter. And um, Advent is much the same, so before Christmas. So what I started with were these big feast days like Easter and Christmas. And then I began to work out when, um, say, Lent would begin, when Advent would begin. And then I remember lying in the bed thinking, what can I do about Martha? And um, I remembered, you know, St. Martha, the, the, the sister of um, Lazarus, she should come in there. So I remember giving, you know, her that day, you know, you know because St. Martha is a day in the, in, the, in the calendar. So it wasn't my idea, but I had to work it out and I had to find suitable readings for all of those parts. Well, now, several excerpts from the, the Business of Heaven are, are shorter works or essays by Lewis. So speaking of his essays, uh, if I understand correctly, the first piece from Lewis that you read was a introduction to Letters to, to Young Churches. 
That piece is now called Modern Translations of the Bible and is in a book you edited entitled God in the Dock. Um, so that's kind of the setup here. And then the question is, uh, do you have any all-time favorite essays by Lewis, or alternatively, what essays just come to, to the top of your mind that you think readers shouldn't overlook? Well, I think one that uh, I wouldn't want them to overlook is the poison of subjectivism. Mm-hmm. I believe with um, Pope Benedict that relativism is one of the great sicknesses of this of this times that we are in. And it's interesting to me that when Lewis was planning uh, his broadcast talks for the BBC, he was originally asked only to give one series, and then the other series followed. But that one series is about natural law, which is I know is a, a Catholic concept, but he calls it the great moral law, which is the same thing. And it's interesting that he himself knew, or I think he was prophetic, in that he guessed that this was going to be a huge problem today, where you find one person saying, but you have your morality, I have mine. That's right for you, but it's wrong for me, and so on. Well, you can't really have anything like a stable society. You can't even have a democracy if, in fact, different people have a different idea of what progress means. But, of course, his great work on that is the abolition of man. And um, when uh, Joseph Ratzinger, as he was then, later became Pope Benedict, when he was in Cambridge in 19... uh, uh, 1988. Oh, I wish he had been in Oxford instead of Cambridge, but anyway, at least I could read what he said in his talk. And there, in Cambridge, where he knew Lewis had, had been a teacher, he talked about the abolition of man, Lewis's work. And uh, I think it's very interesting that he has been thinking along the same lines as Pope Benedict. Pope Benedict is, is a good deal yo- younger than he is, but not all that much. But they had still solved the same problems ahead. Well, now, because you've tracked down so many shorter works by Lewis, uh, I remember hearing in another interview at least some unique story, or maybe there were a few here, but uh, any stories that come to your mind in terms of tracking down those shorter works or those essays, I know, In a talk uh, that you gave uh, here, we're in Oxford recording, you were uh, noting about going through, you know, page by page, but just uh, any interesting finds, unusual finds, or uh, dead ends, anything that comes to your mind? Yes, well, um, as I said this morning, um, what I did is just place myself in the Bodleian, and I just knew that Lewis had written for a number of things, like tide and tie, tide and tie. And so what I did was to get up all the copies from 1930. I don't think he would likely have published before that. And then right up through 1963 and just start at one page, one, usually at the back, 
and just keep turning the pages until I, I found a great many things that way. I think uh, I didn't say this morning, though, but I did have one dead end, which ended a bit with a twist. Uh, I was told by a professor of English here, he was a young Don at that time, but he was pretty sure that Lewis had published something in Men Only. Well, I imagine that Men Only had to do with deep sea fishing, something my father would have read, or wrestling with um, bears in the, in the uh, woods. Anyway, so I ordered up all the men only from 1930 to 63, and uh, I'm sitting on one side of the desk in the uh, Bodleian upstairs, and there was a very tall man, about 6'5", sitting across from me, must be about your height, I think. Anyway, he's a priest, and he could look straight down onto what I was looking at, but I couldn't see what he was doing. Anyway, men only wasn't about deep sea fishing. <laughs> it was it was like Playboy, I think. It had nothing but women's bodies. And <laughs> but what kept me going with Father Father Ian Boyd, as it turns out to be, who was who was just getting ready to be the editor of the Chesterton Review. He could watch me as I turned all these pages. No, no, not you know, one one volume, but hundreds of volumes, you know, from sixty nineteen thirty to sixty-three. But yet what kept me going was that I did find pieces by Robert Graves and C. Day Lewis and other, you know, uh, literary scholars who probably never read that magazine. Anyway, after that first day, I felt so embarrassed with Father Carl, I mean, Father Ian. So I followed him out and I said, Father, it's not what you think. He said, what do you think I think? And I said, you think I'm an old man looking at all this pornography. But I said, it's not. I'm told that, you know, that C.S. Lewis could be the, oh, yes, I bet he is, you know. <laughs> and uh, anyway, I kept talking to him. He still always, every morning, he was sitting in the same place. But I finally convinced him that I was not, you know, looking at it for pornographic reasons. But I, in the end, I didn't find anything by C.S. Lewis. <laughs> but I could see why the other person would be deceived. Mm -hmm. Well, now, the um, last book of new material from Lewis was just in uh, 2013, the Image and, and Imagination yeah. Collection. Now, those weren't anything that you more recently found. It just, um, they were th things that previously, uh, well, I guess my, my question uh, would be more like, um, uh, was it because of the um, anniversary, 2013, that it was like, well, is there anything left over that we hadn't? How did that, uh, you know, th that, that volume, to talk about how that came to be or well, and, and, thought, and the contents? Well, uh, so the, you know, I, I would naturally publish Lewis's books, essays, poems, and first. But these were his book reviews. And not everybody would be as, nearly as keen on book reviews as they would be say, his poems or his essays. Um, so this is one 
one part of Lewis which had not been edited. So I think so far, I believe I've edited everything of Lewis's, but I hadn't done the book reviews. So I wrote to Cambridge University Press uh, months before the Lewis cent uh, uh, centenary, his 50, 50th anniversary of his death. And um, I was worried, I wanted to combine selected literary essays, which they had had published at one time, with the book reviews, because I didn't think the book reviews would be enough. And she said, no, I'll tell you what, why don't you just, we'll bring out selected literary essays, because they have, uh, they brought out about four volumes or or several volumes of Lewis that he gave them, but at least two or three or four volumes that I edited for them. She said, why not just the book reviews? And I thought, this is a good chance not only to bring out the book reviews, but those chance pieces like um, oh, the introduction to Joy Davidman's book, Smoke on the Mountain, and also, what I'm very fond of is the preface to essays presented to Charles Williams. So there were a number of things that had no, had no home. <laughs> and I thought, these we want very much. So I combined them with that, and I think it worked very well. She says she's had great success with that book. Now, um, in another interview, I heard the first book by Lewis you read was Miracles, you read it in 1953, several years after it was published, and this wasn't by choice. It just happened to be what was available. Focusing on the not-by-choice part, um, some people avoid this hard read or it's more difficult reading from Lewis. Uh, so the question is, uh, is uh, why would you say it's important for Christians to read a book like uh, Miracles? Well, I read it um, uh and I'm very glad I did, because that was the, the book that the Strong Sisters found for me when I went into the army. And um, the only, only book of his that I could find, you'd think in Chapel Hill they would have C.S. Lewis, but they didn't. The only thing they had was Letters to Young Churches by J.B. Phillips, and that's where I read that, the uh, preface that you spoke of. But anyway, I was very glad the Strong Sisters sent me miracles. And um, at least it wasn't so big as the uh, 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 English literature in the 16th century because I had to carry that book inside my shirt during the whole of basic training. And when I climbed under barbed wire and all of that, it was with miracles in, <laughs> next to my skin. And uh, anyway, in basic training, after every hour of uh, activity like bazooka training or whatever, you're given a 10-minute cigarette break. Well, this, was, this took place in Fort Jackson, South Carolina. And what I would do is I had already sampled uh, miracles. I liked it. And... Um, I would go find the uh, nearest pine tree and sit under the pine tree and read at least three or four pages of that, you know, during the cigarette break. And um, 
Anyway, it was very important that I, you know, I regard it every day as a pleasure because no matter what we did in basic training, I would get to read some of the miracles. And I remember even the, even the roots of the tree I was sitting on when I read certain passages. But I still think it's one of my favorite books, and it's a very important book. Um, how about for you know for those who say, oh, I, I glanced at it; it seemed too difficult to to read. Why should they push through to um, read it? You should push through because many people, as Lewis says, uh, begin by uh, not believing in miracles. And if you don't believe in in miracles, nothing is likely to convince you. But Jesus believed in miracles; he performed miracles. You know, I don't see how any Christian can be a competent, reasoning Christian unless he does. And uh, But Lewis explains things so well. Uh, it, it's a wonderful book. I think, you know, if people had read it, they would find, well, I would give almost a thousand, hundred million pounds if I just had a book like that to just fall on my lap, you know, and I hadn't read a, of something, a, a book by Lewis. Reminds me of a, of a young lady I know out in, in California. She's a nurse, and um, she loves the Narnian stories so much that uh, she's saving one of them uh, n- not to read but until she knows she's dying and she wants to have something like that, this wonderful book she's saving for her death, her death. So she can, if it's a difficult death and cancer and all that, you know, then at least she will have a Narnian story to read. And, um, but I love the uh, uh, miracles. I've read most of Lewis's books, uh, six, seven times at least. Just as a, a side note, uh, I know for, for myself, I first, uh, because I like audio, I attempted to listen to it in audio, and it's not as conducive for the first time, I guess you might say. And so being aware that there were actually uh, one essay he wrote before that was adapted and then another one. So I'll, I'll have links uh, in the show notes to that for those who maybe find miracles a little overwhelming initially, uh, get your feet wet, so to yeah. speak, with, with those essays. Uh, but now, um, thinking about from n- another interview, I believe, uh, as well as in other places, you've noted that you first wrote to Lewis in, in 1953, the same year that you started reading him, and uh, you didn't expect a reply. Um, what did you think and feel about hearing back from him and then over the years, kind of a two-part question I can follow up with, uh, before you met him 10 years later, what was um, some of the things in terms of uh, from those letters, which are in the collected letters, I, I believe? Well, it was 1954 that I first wrote to him. Mm-hmm. And um, I had, by this time, the Strong Sisters. I'm very glad what happened about the Strong Sisters. They didn't get... You know, uh, they didn't have in bookshops at that time, you know, a stack of the the Narnian stories and then a stack of the apologetics and then Lewis's uh, 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 cosmic trilogy. Nothing was sorted out. 
it was all just Lewis. And so I think after uh, Miracles, I think I may have read, sent to them, uh, sent to me by them, uh, English literature in the 16th century. Well, I liked that too, very much. I could hear Lewis's wonderful voice speaking through that. And then came uh, Screw Tape Letters, and then I think uh, the, the uh, Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, and so on. So I never thought of Lewis sounding like different men, but always just that one person. He was annoyed by people who thought he sounded like several people. But I never did think he sounded that way. Okay. Now, in terms of, um, if I understood correctly, when you did write to him, uh, you didn't expect to, to hear back. What was uh, your kind of initial reaction? Well, uh, what I had said to him was that I was already Christian when I started reading his books. But uh, what he... What he, he my position before I started reading his books was that I felt very much like Tom Sawyer and Becky in Lost in the Cave. But then comes that, that period, that moment when they see a chink of light and they know there's a way out. And so I said, this is the position you put me in. I see the chink of light. And he said, I'm glad if I've been an instrument of the Lord's help to him, to you. In his hands, any instrument will do, otherwise none. Even in our sins, we should look no longer than to know and to, to, um, to, know and to uh, contemplate them. For they're not a proper object of uh, inspection. When a man comes under the vine meridian... He loses his consciousness of self, and in the end, he becomes an open room which God and our fellow creatures help to fill, while he, in turn, helps to fill them. But how far from this one is at present? Well, it did me to him so much. I was so grateful. And... Um, Anyway, I continued to read his, his everything he wrote. And he was built bringing out books at that time. So, I mean, like, uh, like uh, I had to look forward to was surprised by joy. And uh, anyway, so, you know, it's different when, you know, the, all the books are there. Mm -hmm. and, but it's nice to think there's a new one coming. Mm -hmm. And some more on onion stories as well. And so uh, I wondered how on earth could I possibly actually see him. I didn't think about meeting him because I, that just seemed too much like a dream. But how could I actually uh, even just see him? Anyway, um, I was persuaded to uh, apply for this contract to Twain's English author series and write a book about C.S. Lewis for that. So I was working on that and told him about it when I asked him if we might meet. Um, he said, I, it's really better to write on the unanswering dead mm -hmm. because the, you know, um, they could always blow the gaff on you know, all these conjectures. 
Anyway, but he said, if you are in Oxford, oh, come and see me. Well, I assume that meant one time. And if I were Lewis, I think I would probably reserve, you know, my time. I wouldn't have said, let's meet a number of times. I think I would have just said, let's meet. Uh, because you don't know how long, whether you're going to like this person or not. <laughs> and, and it may seem, um, uh, you, it could be that just one meeting you feel like is enough for both sides. But anyway, uh, this morning I talked about the at that, that first meeting, and um, I was so afraid this was it. This was all that was going to be. And the difficulty was that I liked him so much. I remember as we were walking away together to the pub and to the bus stop, I really loved this man. I felt like I knew him but he knew his works very well. But I never imagined that I would like him so much. Anyway, as I was getting on the bus, I thought, this is it. I'm almost sorry I met him because I will grieve over not seeing him again. Anyway, when I said goodbye, he said, oh, you're not getting away. You're coming to the Inkling meeting on Monday. And so if the inkling meeting, he said, you're coming back to the kilns on Wednesday. And then on Wednesday, he said, you're coming back on Sunday. And then you're coming back, <laughs> we're going to meet on Monday. And so we were meeting three times a week until he asked me to stay. So I was very, very fortunate. I know that. And um, so... Uh, even though some people say, but then, you know, knowing him, you know, just a few months is not very much. It, I, mean, I would have uh, been very, very, thank God for one meeting, much less living in his house with him. No, um, no, I'm grateful for the time I have. And I think when God does gracious, wonderful things for you, you don't look him in the eye and say, but only if it were longer. Why didn't? Why not having longer? No, this was enough. This was, I'm more than grateful. I'm, every day, I thank God. I, I had so, so much time with him. Mm -hmm. It was a blessing. Well, now, uh, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago a book that, uh, I enjoy very much the uh, screw tape letters. That's what really made me a, a, a really enjoy his uh, work. Uh, and uh, I'm wondering in terms of something I did uh, previously on my podcast, I had people give short reflections about maybe the first time they read the screw tape letters, what stood out or points that you think are especially profound that he worked in the screw tape letters or, or any other kind of reflection about that. Uh, since uh, for 2016, it's the 75th anniversary of the first occurrence because it came out weekly before it became out in a book in 1942. So any top-of-the-head uh, reflections about the, your first time you read it or things that stood with you? Yes. Um, the thing that um, sticks in my head a lot now, I met a, a young man probably about 19. He's over here with the, with the group from, I think, um, Seattle. And, you know, I thought, my goodness, 
he's just beginning as a Christian. And, um, but I wonder, you know, if as a Christian, he finds life as exciting as, say, non-Christians might. Anyway, I was led to give him a piece of advice, which I got from the screw tape letters. Remember when the patient goes to church, he's disappointed because the people there are not dressed in togas. They're just ordinary-looking people in boots that squeak and just ordinary people. It's, and I told him, I said, if you're familiar with the biblical uh, films like The Robe and all of this, there are times, you know, when being a Christian, you would like for it to be, you know, running messengers, you know, for, like you running messengers for St. Peter and, uh, and, and finding, you know, that uh, the, the lions were waiting to eat you up. You know, but I mean, all this excitement, but as it is, you don't have that. But what you have instead, I insist, is far more important to the gospel now than it would be if you had been, you know, running messengers for for St. Peter. And this is a very complicated world we're living in now. And Christians are are discriminated against badly, even in a Christian country like the United States. So I'm glad, I am glad you are born now and that you're 19 and can do things for the gospel. Because I know that these young people who are Christians have street smarts which I don't have. I'm just too old for that now. But he will have it. And I said, so um, even if it looks like you've been given a raw deal, I don't think I have. I'm glad to be in a world with you. Continuing on about the screw tape letters, in 1976, uh, if I've got the date right, there was a special release of the screw tape letters that included a unique audio recording I don't know if we're letting the cat out of the bag. I, I, I've, I've, met, I've lost some of the aspects, but I um, ha- bought those uh, cassette tapes several years ago. Who voiced that, and what was the process of recording it like? Well, the, um, the, the very nice man, uh, Bob O'Donnell, who, who wanted that, I didn't really want to do that, but he wanted to do that. And I so I... I was advised to help him if I could. And what he did is to change the screw tape letters, to try to make it more relevant. Very people, many people attempted to. Anyway, it didn't work. And um, I think he, he, with the best will in the world, he tried something that was beyond him. What wasn't beyond him was far, far better is he did a film of uh, C.S. Lewis called Through Joy and Beyond. The film is, is what he should have been doing all the time because that's what he does for a living. And I think he, 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 he worked so hard on that. He chose the perfect places where exactly where Lewis had been, you know, like and we, we filmed even in Lewis's house in Belfast, you know, 
But uh, I think in the end, the, the, the Screw Tape Letters, all of his publications and all of that, were given to prisons, <laughs> free. Um, but now, you, you were the one who actually voiced that um, audio recording, if I'm I not mistaken. So, yes, yes, yes. Okay, yeah. Yeah, and it, the, um, it actually came out with a short study guide. So that, that was actually my uh, first exposure, mm-hmm. and I, I, I did enjoy it uh, very much. But now, speaking of Through Joy and Beyond, uh, I guess I didn't realize until I attended uh, an Inkling so weekend in 2016 that uh, the videotape, the VHS I had that was a, about an hour long, that that was not the entire production, that it was a, a no, three-hour and such. Uh, um, I, I didn't check with the weight. I don't know if they have the... Uh, the, a video, if the Bodleian does, or you know, well, the, the man Bob O'Donnell has it. Uh-huh. Okay. I mean, you should get off to him and plead with him. Well, he's got a son who's a very youngish man, and get the son and the father to bring it out in uh, a DVD or whatever yes. it is, because this was the second part of it, and these were interviews with the with Lewis's friends. And uh, I remember particularly interviewing uh, Pauline Baines, the illustrator of Narnia stories. And um, in the, um, the, I've seen a picture of um, uh, me interviewing uh, Dr. Havard in The Bird and the Baby and interviewing the Tolkien children. And um, so the interviews were very important. And I don't know why. He doesn't bring it out. But it may be, he's an old man now, like me. And so he may not just feel the energy for it. But if somebody could offer to help him, and, and uh, maybe you, uh, to help him, that might be a good idea. I would, I would definitely it's look into big, it. Yeah. It's a gold mine just mm. underneath the earth. Mm-hmm, definitely it is. Um, any, uh, uh, in terms of uh, th- that experience, uh, I- uh, anything, I'm sure the whole thing was uh, very, uh, very special, but any any stories that come to the top of your mind, they don't have to be the most important things, but anything uh, that uh, was fascinating, unique about it, unusual? Well, I remember uh, Father John Tolkien and Miss uh, Priscilla Tolkien were the two Tolkien children I talked to. And I remember um, so, so many people that uh, started with Humphrey Carpenter say that Lewis and Tolkien were cold towards one another. They were not. And um, John uh, Tolkien makes it very clear how, how many visits he and his brother Christopher took up to see, take their father up to see Lewis in, in his last months. And um, on one occasion, he said he remembered in particular, I said, what did you talk about? And he said, I remember my father and Lewis talked about the Mordatha and whether trees ever die. Are trees immortal like people, or do they die? A wonderful question, isn't it? Let's see, you're, um, I guess, in 1998 or around the centennial uh, in the U.S., I think it was the uh, Companion and Guide, which you made reference to, and then 
uh, a complete guide to his works, I think, is uh, either a, a revised, not, not a revised edition, but maybe the UK, or are they re republished well, they it? They just reprinted it with a different, different title. Different title, okay. But um, it, it, that's a huge volume, which uh, I encourage people to get if they uh, don't have. But uh, I'm sure there's many things you, you could talk about regarding that. But in terms of, um, you shared part of that story. Uh, it was it was a several-year project, obviously. But in terms of... Um, uh, what well, note about um, for those who, who haven't seen it, it's uh, you cover all of his books, but you also include many other aspects: the who's who, what, what. Uh, yeah. Sure about what it is, and then if anything, in terms of that experience. Well, I remember, as I said, um, what I wanted to do is to clear up uh, all the myths that were building up around C.S. Lewis, and one of the myths uh, had to do with the um, Socratic club and the debate between C.S. Lewis and Miss Anscombe, Elizabeth Anscombe, who was a very important uh, philosopher at Cambridge and, and Oxford. Anyway, um, what I did in that was to explain what she, what she believed, what her theories were, and mainly causality, and to explode that notion that they had a, a battle, you know, and she won. And um, it's as though, if she her, herself, I met her a number of times, and she said, no, it really was wrong of them to do that. They portrayed Lewis as the Christian, and me as the, you know, just the feminist who could kick a, a, a Christian around. But she said, doesn't it occur to them that having seven children, I might be a Catholic? And she was a very, very devout Catholic. But um, she was very interested in clearing things up about what actually happened. And she said the reason they don't pay any attention to what actually happened is because they don't understand it. That what she said, what I, my, my theory is, and what we were talking about, is causality. This is what I mainly write about and give lectures on, is causality. But they were only interested in the personal aspects of it. You know, uh, they liked a debate between uh, C.S. Lewis and they wanted a woman to kick him out, you know, Kick, the, kick him around the room. And she said, I'm so sorry about that. She said, because it really, it was a very interesting talk, but they don't really understand that. They, they prefer to talk about personalities rather than ideas. That makes me, uh, reminds me of the fact that it was many years later that Lewis revised that chapter um, and it only came out uh, a few years before his death, if I'm not mistaken. But, 1960. Right. And, and actually, prior to that, or, or obviously in between that, there was an abridged version of Miracles yes, that was yes. actually, I think few people actually are aware of, yes. and that if, if Lewis was so, you know, defeated or whatever, he would have, A, rushed to do a revise, and B, when he did the abridged, he would have done something with it yes, to, yes. to clarify, but he there was no rush to revise it because there was no grand defeat yeah. and such. So, yeah. Well, Miss Anscombe came back to the C.S. Lewis Society, or I think she'd been there before, uh, to give a talk 
on what's still wrong with the revised chapter 3. And her paper, uh, thank God, has been recently published in a book called C.S. Lewis and His Circle, mm -hmm. papers given to the C.S. Lewis Society. And um, so you can read it yourself. But I remember she uh, went into great elaboration as to why you can't still say this or that. I think most of us were uh, just simply uh, head over heels. We did not understand it. I think only a few of the philosopher tutors who with that understood it. But at the end, I said, Mr. Hanscom, if the Lewis estate offered to pay a million pounds to your favorite charity, could you rewrite chapter three so that it does hold water <laughs> and does make sense? And the room went quiet for about five minutes. And we looked at the lady who just was thinking. And then she broke her silence and said, no, I couldn't. <laughs> well, if she couldn't do it, who could? <laughs> but, you know, um, the other, uh, the philosophers who were there, and they were distinguished people, they said later, Lewis never really needed to change it at all. Mm -hmm. in, in the book you, you reference, uh, I do have a, I did uh, interview one of the uh, co-editors, yes, so I'll have a link in, in the show notes uh, about that. But uh, I didn't know if there was anything else you were wanting to say about uh, that aspect. No, no, no I yeah. like Miss <laughs> Anscombe very, very much, and uh, and I and, and we were we were great friends at the end, and um, I think she played it fair and square, uh, and she was uh, she told me that you know now what she would do is to. If she read her paper, she would leave Lewis's name out of it because people then began to think, oh, did she beat this man, this wonderful Christian Apollo? And she said, I want them to listen to my theory of causality. See, people are not really interested in philosophical ideas like that. So they prefer to talk about what hat she wore, something <laughs> like that. Well, I've made reference to uh, other conversations. I've read interviews, uh, uh, and, and I'm thinking of that again, a conversation you told uh, that you had about Lu or with Lewis that uh, you noted that that hideous strength was what you liked the most, but Paralander was what you thought was his best book. Um, why for both, and then do they remain in each of those categories? Well, um, what happened was, uh, really quite simply, I said, what do you think is your best book? And he said, I think probably Paralandra is my best book. And then he said, which do you like of my books the best? And I said, well, I, I thought we were talking about the same thing. I said, well, I agree with you that Perilandra is best. He said, no, no, that was your, your first question. But my question was different. My question was, which do you like the best? And I said, oh, in that case, I like that, that hideous strength more than any. And he said, so do I. 
But you see, there is a big difference between what you think best and what you like most. Mm-hmm. Um, do those two r- remain that way, or uh, having read his books several times years later now? No, I, I, I still think my favorite book in the world is That Idiot's Strength. I read it every year. Mm-hmm. Okay. Or more. <laughs> I love it. Um, speaking of uh, Paralandra, I believe in your companion and guide, you state that uh, Lewis did an edited version that was never published. Now, some may confuse uh, this with the fact that uh, uh, it, it did come out uh, under a different title, Voyage to Venus, but that is the full version. It just was uh, just was republished under a different title. So, so that this edited version, um, I think you noted it's never been published. Is, is that something that exists or it was in the bonfire or it's... No, it wasn't the bonfire, but it, it exists. But what happened was that St. Louis, um, his, his New York publishers gave the rights to his Cosmic Trilogy to, uh, I think it's Ace Books, is it? Well, you can look it up. In, uh, um, and anyway, so he did. He, he, they wanted them shortened, and they wanted more exciting titles. So anyway, they did uh, That Hideous Strength. And he says in, in the introduction to that, he didn't like doing that. He, d- he really felt it needed to be a longer book, but he was willing to go along with it. And then he was pretty sure they wanted him to do exactly the same thing with uh, Perilandra. So he has a version in which he took out this and took out that. But because they never asked for it, he was relieved that he didn't have to publish a shortened version of his own favorite book. And so it's no point in publishing what he didn't want published. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, um, but it was that type. They, they thought Perilandra doesn't you know, can't remind anybody, but Voyage to Venus. Uh, but Voyage to Venus was just the, the title they gave it. So mm-hmm. when it came back, the rights reverted to us. I changed it back to Perilandra. Now, the uh, c- Collected Letters is, is something that uh, many people have enjoyed, uh, the fact that it came out the last decade. And it, it's been, you know, other letters have trickled in and such. And uh, is there any consideration of a, a, a fourth volume or a revised all uh, volumes and adding a fourth? I know the, the third one, the print version, is uh, out of print, but the electronic version is available. Any thoughts about what either you would like to see or what might be possible, or it's what's there is there. Well, what, what is, um, is sort of on the cards now is the people in Cambridge who did Lewis books for the same team, they are interested in the, in the uh, collected letters, but they said that if they did it, they were divided up into six volumes. You know, they don't like these huge fourteen hundred page books, I and mean, I mean, you can't you can't put it on your stomach without <laughs> getting um, indigestion at night. So what they would do is divide it up into six different books, 
And then perhaps if there's enough uh, uh, letters showing up, and there still are quite a lot, then that might be the seventh volume. But there's no specific plans at this point. It's no, 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 no plans. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. Um, in uh, one of the things you, you, you noted was about the, the special fund that, that was set up initially with the money uh, that Lewis got for the screw tape letters. Now, um, I, I asked someone else, uh, they, they gave an answer, and I, I guess it makes sense, but um, I, I was wondering, was that true for all his books or just the Christian ones, like, say, his uh, academic books? And so someone noted, well, academic books don't sell very well anyway, but I'll ask the question anyway just to have a, maybe a final no, authority. It, it included two-thirds of his total income yeah, okay. from, from his teaching, all books. Okay. So it's just two-thirds of his total income. Then um, in terms of like uh, uh, takeaway from, from Lewis's life, um, it would be unfair to say in any summary points, but what comes out in terms of someone kind of new to, to Lewis, whatever entryway that they have, whether it be from Narnia or, or any others, uh, what uh, would you uh, encourage people just brand new, just starting to read Lewis? I think mere Christianity. Mm-hmm. I think you just can't beat it. You know, you think you know a lot about Christianity, but, you know, you have to read Lewis to see uh, what what he's so good at is taking extremely profound thoughts and putting them into everyday language that anybody could understand. I think, you know, how much ink has been spilt over faith versus works, you know, between Lutherans and the Catholic Church. And, um, but that, what does Lewis say, which solves it more beautifully than anything I've ever heard. He said, that's like asking which blade of the scissors does the most cutting. <laughs> and I remember even, I was in the army, when I read, you know, the first part about loving people, it doesn't mean, he said, liking them. Because it could be somebody you can't like or is unlikable. But it means what Christ meant is loving them, doing, treating them as you would be treated yourself. And I find that is a tremendous relief to people who've been struggling to try to like people they don't like. Uh, so, I mean, it's just all along the way, things like that. You know, you, you'll find your, your idea of Christianity will change enormously. It's very good. I have a, have a friend who is a, a Opus Dei priest. They are the most orthodox of the Catholic in, almost in the world. And he teaches at Pamplona uh, in, in Spain, and he, it is this father, who is mainly responsible for Lewis's works being in Spanish. Anyway, he visited me one time, and he said that in his class in Pamplona, where he teaches, he used mere Christianity in theological classes. And I said, but you know, he doesn't he doesn't mention the magisterium or the papacy, so. Is that confusing for them? They say, oh, no, no. I mean, they're, they're well 
you know, they're educated people. They know uh, that Anglican Church, you know, is different. But we read it because Lewis explains things so clearly. So the things we do share, he clarifies more better than anybody we can think of. Well, Walter, thank you very much for being on All About Jack. I really appreciate you granting me this chance to interview you. Fine. Well, I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I, I, I mean, you can't stop me talking about C.S. Lewis. You might tell your listeners that. You had to actually put a pillow in my mouth to stop me talking about <laughs> C.S. Lewis. <laughs> well, thank you very much again. I'm William O'Flaherty, and you've been listening to Walter Hooper on my show, All About Jack, which is a podcast feature of EssentialCSLewis.com. All About Jack is also part of the Theology Mix Podcast Network. Thank you for joining me today, and I hope you will check out my other podcasts, which are typically interviews with authors on books about C.S. Lewis. Also, be sure to check the show notes for links to books by Lewis that were mentioned. You can find those show notes either at EssentialCSLewis.com or AllAboutJack.Podbean.com. The Podbean location is where the podcast is most easily found. Again, that's AllAboutJack.Podbean.com. Podbean is spelled P-O-D-B-E-A-N. The other location, EssentialCSLewis.com, provides links back to where the audio files are located, but also has other features which include a variety of articles related to Lewis. Another way to catch my podcast is through the iTunes feed. Feel free to visit that. There is a link in the show notes. And please consider leaving a rating so others can find my podcast on iTunes. If you do visit the show through the iTunes feed, you'll notice that besides the weekly feature podcast, I do also release older shows during the week. That is also accessible directly through the allaboutjack.podbean.com. Dot com. Finally, in case you didn't know, I've written a book to help one enjoy the Screwtape Letters. My book, C.S. Lewis Goes to Hell, a companion and study guide to the Screwtape Letters, is available online at Amazon or Barnes & Noble. You can learn more about it by visiting ScrewtapeCompanion.com. There you can get an immediate download of a free 20-page PDF sample of the book. Again, that's ScrewtapeCompanion.com. <laughs>